The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. guest today is an established authority on the psychology and technology of leadership and also organizational transformation. Cleve Stevens, PhD, has been formally engaged in the field of leadership development for more than 20 years, serving as an advisor and leadership development consultant to top business leaders and Fortune 500 companies in North America, Europe and Asia. He's also taught leadership and business leadership at the graduate and undergraduate level at the University of Southern California, Beijing University and Northern East University in China. Dr. Stevens, welcome to you. Great. Great to be here. If I may, I would like to uh, start off, as I do with most of my programs, uh, with your early years, actually going back to childhood. Um, can you just briefly tell me about, about your childhood, about the memories that you have from that? period? Uh, I sure can. Um, it, that feeds into a lot of the work that I do with my clients and getting them clear about certain things. So I spend a lot of time with them about theirs. I was, I was born in Southern California. I'm the son of a, a, a minister and a teacher. And at a very early age, we moved, I was a year old, we moved to Utah, which is a, which, which, which was an unusual environment for a Baptist minister's kid. Um, and I was, uh, we were pretty much handled pretty poorly as a minority group in that experience. And I think that was one of the things that, that shaped a lot of my thinking about the world and my sensitivities and my, I'm sure, my sensibilities today. In fact, I'm absolutely confident of that. Um, so some of my most vivid memories were um, both bitter and sweet. I mean, I experienced a lot of discrimination in that those first seven or eight years of my life. But in, in our small community uh, of the church, I was also loved and treated with great warmth. And so I've had those two poles, I think, that have always worked in the back of my psyche. But I think that is those are some of the memories that certainly have shaped my sensitivity, I think, and my attitude toward life and toward people. And the reason that I ask this, and I, I begin every program with this, is because I personally think that we all need to go back to our childhood. Um, it it uh, designs and shapes uh, like a piece of pottery, uh, the way that our life is going to be. Um, do you, when you're working with leaders in, in industry, do you take that same methodology and apply that in without, any way? Without any shadow of a doubt. Um, I spend a lot of time having them come to grips with how the things they made up about themselves and about the world as children shapes how they experience the world today without them even consciously knowing it. So... It, 
my work always begins with this. In fact, when I work with a senior executive team, I spend a good deal of time helping them come to grips with the fact that they're really not being run by their conscious minds as much as they would like to think. That in fact, some of these experiences continue to filter and determine virtually the whole of their, their world view. Now, looking back at that, and I don't want to hover for too long, but were you in an urban or, or a suburban or a, a rural um, upbringing? As a child, primarily I, a little bit of both because as a, a minister's family, we moved around quite a bit. But the first seven years that I mentioned earlier, seven of the first eight were in a suburban area, a small town outside of Salt Lake City. And we've lived, and I've lived in various city city locales, Los Angeles, on various other parts of Southern California. Um, so I've had a little bit of mixture of both. So looking back, what were the memories about industry, about hmm. manufacturing, about the, hmm. the 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 way of life that is so different from today? The memories that were far less about manufacturing and far more about what I think my life was preparing me for, the information. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the f information technologies, not so much from an IT point of view, but we are in the what is often viewed as the information age. So being the, the child of a minister and a school teacher, language and words and understanding human behavior was always central. Now, I think that I saw that the business world through the eyes of my parents, as most of us do. But I saw them from the eyes of a preacher's son. How do we influence the business world, and how do we get the business world to support what we're up to? So that it's a little bit different than most of the business leaders, I think, that you've probably spent time with. Well, that's that's a uh, a, a, a very unique upbringing, isn't yeah, it? I think uh, so. You're you're coming from a, a, a different world mm, to the I one so. to the one that you're integrated in now. Very much so. And and I noticed, and I, I'm skipping here, but I did notice that you you became a theologian. Uh, you became a master's in divinity. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that, again that you apply in the principles? And oh methodology when you're working with leaders? The same things that led me to study divinity, um, trying to understand the human circumstance and understand human behavior are the things that ultimately led me to believe that if I wanted to influence humankind, I had to do it through business. Um, far from uh, something I could do in any of the formal spiritual endeavors, the influence that I wanted to have, given the fact that business runs the world. And more, probably more than politics and certainly more than education. It's, the, it's what shapes the way in which the human circumstance really unfolds, for good or for ill. And lately we're thinking more for ill. Well, let me go back in that case, to, not in too much depth. But let, let's look at um, Paradise Lost. Let's look at Milton. <laughs> let's look at the early 1600s when we really saw a period that cited very clearly uh, the onset of money as, as a way to uh, um, uh, uh, flip and, and transfer skills and product. Um, we've almost taken that to a, an extreme now, have we not? Would you agree that we're, we are now not benefiting but we are hurting so very badly because money has become God in a way and, and we have seen huge years, probably 10 or 20 years here of terrible greed. I would say 30 years of terrible greed and I would completely agree with that. Money has become the object in the end in and of itself, but not just for a few, for, for the many who really have no access to it but have the fantasy that they do. 
And so um, I think that it began for us, the condition that we're in now began in earnest in the early 80s. Um, that's why I would say it's been about 30 years. Um, I think that I think that partly, and this is just my own theorizing here, but um, I, I think that uh, the as a, partly as a backlash to some of the idealism of the 60s and 70s, um, the endorsement of greed is good, and the the uh, Gordon Gecko is the character I believe in Wall Street. Um, which was supposed to be a morality tale by Oliver Stone, but I think people missed the morality piece of it. Well, and this is where, again, I go to to your education, Um, your PhD in social ethics uh, and leader development. Now, you're using both uh, theology, uh, you're using, um, I'm assuming, uh, ultimately the one truth, uh, God's truth. Uh, You're using social ethics for these leaders. Um, are, are we, in a way, paying a price for the postmodernistic uh, period? The um, nihilism that kind of emerges out of that, perhaps. Yes. Um, I suspect so. I suspect that um, the the with the advance of postmodernism, a lot of really great things occurred. We became sensitive and aware to the inequalities and to the fact that. One view of the world may seem universal, but it may not, in fact, be universal. And so we have to develop a greater sensitivity. At the same time, the extreme of that is nihilism and saying that there is no basis for morality. There is no basis for understanding right and wrong. And as a consequence, I think at some level, that is a, that is a, a, a direct result that we're experiencing today. And that is that um, all that matters is what I can do to sustain myself and to line my pocket. And even though I don't believe the majority of people, in fact, the majority of people don't believe that, I think that many of the heads, many of the uh, most significant leaders are operating from that kind of an unconscious way of, of doing business. It's a difficult paradigm, isn't it? It's, it's very difficult understanding how uh, business can work particularly today uh, when you've really seen, as we did in England in the, in the 1970s, we saw virtually the annihilation of, of manufacturing and industry. Mm. We saw our shipbuilding and, and car industry destroyed, uh, coal mining destroyed in part by the, the um, action of the unions, <clears throat> good or bad, on their part. But we now have a, a very different world today. Um, and so are we not up against so many uh, challenges here? And, and is it not at the end of the day, as in life you have leaders and followers, that it's actually the more likely that it's going to be the leaders of industry than the leaders of Capitol Hill that are going to shape that future to, to ensure that we have jobs I, to ensure that we have profitability yes. to ensure that we can look after the environment um, while at the same time changing that paradigm where you're you're really you have to find greater ethics in the world i, I don't think that there's any, i think your question is one of is a very smart question i think there's and I, don't, I think the answer is very simple i think the answer is unequivocally yes Business dominates like it never has in human history. You you referred back to the beginnings of thinking about money as a thing and an object and as currency as something that could be exchanged freely and easily. And we have gone so far and business determines virtually everything. If the business leaders 
of their own don't begin to change how they think about their role as human beings, one amongst many, then all the legislation in the world is not going to countermand that because as we can see, the, you can buy your way into legislation. We know that. Let's not be foolish. And so until we get the business leaders to understand what I believe to be the real big picture about who they are and how they're playing, we, it's, it, it, I tend to – outside of that, I tend to be a little bit fatalistic. Well, you know, and I could be very cynical, and it's not my job to be, but let, let me just place this out on the table and we can run with it. There are some who will say that um, we are living uh, in a world where uh, – and let's look at America – where the middle classes are disappearing. Mm-hmm. We are looking at a world uh, where technology has almost uh, reached the point um, where it be- has become such a intangible, um, transient business in terms of jobs. Hmm. We found that hmm. out in the last 10 or 15 years. Absolutely. Technology has uh, driven great innovation, uh, driven jobs, but, but only for a short space of time before those jobs have uh, disappeared abroad. Um, so we are in, in very difficult times. And, and on the other hand, we are seeing this uh, very well-used word sustainability come up time mm. and time again. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that uh, th- that is almost a I, – I don't like using this expression, I'm terribly British, but I will use it anyway. It's almost a cop-out um, <laughs> uh, for the industry leaders. Uh, is it not that we have to – um, completely uh, relook at the whole uh, business model from the cottage industry to the industrial leaders at the top of the 300 leading corporations in the world uh, and look at the people behind them now and really shape the, the way that these leaders are thinking and acting. Yeah, yeah I, I, um, I absolutely <clears throat> agree with that. I think that if we don't step back and completely reconsider the model, and I mean radically reconsider it, and reconsider how we are, we are going forward with those who lead the model. What is their mentality? What is their sensibility? Again, imposing strictures and legislation, while there's, there's elements of that that are necessary, to be sure, that's not going to solve it. It's got to come with a fundamental shift in the thinking about what our role and responsibility as leaders and as, as fellow citizens, as corny as this sounds, on the planet. Does that, does that mean that we have to also look at w- w- capitalism, socialism, communism? And I know you can throw these out and you can say, well, let's look at a Keynesian uh, model <laughs> cap- capitalism, whatever you want to. to. But it, it's, pretty, it's pretty well known at this stage after uh, the events of the 80s that capitalism is probably the way forward. Of course. But it's the way that, that it is treated uh, at the executive level uh, around that board table. And I, I think what is happening in my view is you have some very um, well-positioned uh, people at the top of these industries um, who have good intentions, but it's not filtering down to the employees or the people or the consumers behind that that are being served by them. And it's not filtering down to the boards, and it's not filtering down, because you will have these, these noble and deeply committed, and I believe there are many of them, uh, deeply committed visionary folks. But until we shift the fundamental cultural mindset around them, 
um, I think we're going to be banging our heads. You brought up capitalism and socialism, and 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 the the thing that's frightening is that we're still pretending that that's an argument that exists, and so we end up in a kind of economic fundamentalism on the re- the left and the right that that says that anything we we can't let me let me back up for a second we can't continue to let these foolish shallow arguments about capitalism and socialism be thrown out anymore it's gone it's over with all that is is a sideshow we've got to figure out what kind of capitalism we are going to have going forward yes that's the solution it's the only answer and so we're all capitalists now let's not pretend otherwise and the question is are we going to have a humane capitalism that is self-sustaining or are we going to have a hedonistic capitalism that is built on I'm going to get what I can, a insularity of the leadership, or can we wake up and recognize that we really – this is not an idealism. We're in this game together. And, and But how do you achieve that practically? Um, you know, there's many – there's many think tanks who are going to say, okay, well, in order to in order to strike a balance, in order to change the mindsets of the the very top industry leaders, mm. you're going to have to attain in some way the feedback from the people and the consumers that they lead. I, I'm beginning to think that, that, that that's not really going to happen unless you have some sort of divine intervention here because because of the, the the way that that has to occur is so complicated so what other mechanism is there or message is there that can absolutely turn upside down the corporate mansion yeah um well that is of course where my area of interest and expertise comes in because what i do with uh, executives is give them an opportunity to understand that the transactional model that 90% of the corporate world operates throughout the world, but uh, and maybe a little bit less in the US, is not the only model. That there is another model, another methodology that, by the way, is both humane and quite pragmatic, quite lucrative. And that's what I um, uh, have appropriated, and it's not new to me, called transformational leadership. And that is a, a methodology that speaks both to a systematic approach to business and a deeply personal approach to business. I see here that, that your real interest is fundamental principles of human and organizational effectiveness. And, and I've, I have added here in my, my notes and well-being. Mm, no doubt. Uh, talk, to, a- talk to that decision personally <laughs> of becoming a consultant and, uh, and an authority in leadership. Uh, you know in life there is always a catalyst mm. that uh, takes somebody down a road. You're either going to take the left or the right. What was it that impassioned you to take this road to, to tackle, frankly, a very, very great challenge? Uh, you know, there's there are several things that came into play. Um, I had done a lot of work in the personal well-being domain, uh, pushing people toward a far greater personal understanding. When I returned to the uni- – and had done some individual consulting and a corporate consulting in that domain. I returned to the university and to, to complete my graduate studies. And in that process – um, working with my mentor at the time, I came to grips with the reality that 
the very thing that you and I have been chatting about earlier, that business runs the world. And if I wanted, in all of my idealistic fervor, as well as my pragmatic desire to really get stuff done with people, if I really wanted to have that kind of an impact, I was going to have to throw myself into the business arena, period. Not because I love business, but because that's where the power brokers on the planet exist today. It's a, it's a difficult world, though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you, you could have some real raving lunatics come in here and, and talk about Wall Street at the moment. Sure. Talk about uh, the tops of, of the last quarter of 08. Where have they gone? Uh, the the overseer of the tarp in that period actually has admitted that she has absolutely I no, no idea where it's gone. There are so many uh, areas in that that must be very difficult for you to to figure out as you're going along. And as with all of us, is it not uh, about a, a step by step uh, journey here? Um, I'm sure even in, in, in your consulting, in your uh, work with leaders, you, you must be learning something every day mm. about the way that people think oh, and yeah. act and work. Yeah, I, I, there is no way to do the kind of work that I do and not perpetually have all of my theories challenged by the practical reality of the way the human mind really seems to work and what really motivates us, what really drives us. Um, but what is exciting for me is that fundamental to the principles that I apply, this what I call transformational technology, is the simple possibility that even some of the most hardened human beings can actually fundamentally alter how they understand themselves. I don't mean that they're going to become Mother Teresa, and I don't want them to become a Mother Teresa. I mean understanding that there is a different game that they can, a fundamentally different game they can play as business leaders that both secures a healthy bottom line, but actually contributes to a greater well-being for all parties interested. But do you think realistically do you think that those very individuals who are in that position have have got there not without some <clears throat> pretty radical uh behavior you know you you, you have to be it's a, it's a dog eat world yes, dog it is. you know it is. i forget the expression doggy now. dog but it it is in that business now and and with that my goodness me you are really with what mm. you're you're talking about here you're really taking them from one extreme to the other and that is from being quite unselfish to thinking first and and foremost about their employees and the people who are consuming right. their products right. and that that has to be now which is urgently required a completely shift in mindset for them for many of them it is it's always it's been surprising to me for the past several years to see how many of these supposedly vicious dog eat dog players relish the opportunity to think that maybe in fact i can improve my bottom line as i give a damn about human beings to see that there's a logical connection between the two, that, they, that the paradigm that we've been operating from is not the only paradigm, that, that they're, they're actually, it's amazing to me, David, to watch some of these characters as they begin to put the dots together and as they begin to see, I could actually be a decent son of a gun and produce better results. 
that in fact is the case. It's not that far of a stretch. But because we are oriented towards certain paradigms, which means they're largely unconscious, we're not even aware that we're being run by very strictured ways of thinking. That's part of the mystery of the human mind. But as people begin to understand that there are fundamentally different ways of looking, that they can actually step back, it's not that big of a leap. It's, it, it takes some real courage because just stepping back from that worldview is frightening for most of us. I'm not talking about business people. I'm talking about human beings. But to recognize that there's a whole different way we can view things means that we have to let go of the security that we have of how it is. It's not because it's hard to see, and it's not because it takes, because it takes extraordinary moral courage. It takes smarts and pragmatic, not deep intellectual academic smarts. And I, and I would, I would um, suggest then that within that last comment, you would include spirituality to a point. Yeah. You, you, we... As you say, I think your words, pragmatic, common sense, wisdom, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that w this is a time to be airy-fairy mm -hmm. about anything. Mm -hmm. there, have to, there have to be positive benchmarks laid out here um, for everybody to look at because we, we really are in, a, in an urgent, yes, uh, and as, uh, as the author Bruce Piasecki says, a, 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 a very um, severe world. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's going to have to be something. You know, what if you look back in social history? I mean, what 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 is it that that changes uh, a, a nation? What is it that changes the way we think? Well, uh, beyond the war, it's usually a uh, a profound human being who comes along, whether it's Gandhi, Hitler, or whoever else. And whatever the outcome, you always know that a lot of people are going to get hurt because that's <laughs> that's what occurs. Yeah, and that's how, that's what defines a changing nation. But in your work and in your uh, involvement with with heads of industry, heads of business, uh, is there also a positive realization here that America is a great country and my goodness me, it is at the moment going through hell, I think, in so many areas that it's still, uh, it's still possible – to stop the erosion that that somebody like Gibbons and w w you know defined in the the fall of the Roman Empire mm. because that's the is that not uh, the danger even for this country I, that it can implode it from within? I think it absolutely is, and I think that the the danger that allows that to be continue as a danger even after what we went through over the past eighteen months is that the human capacity for denial is extraordinary. And that's the bad news. The bad news is that we can deny that we're still on the brink. The good news is that with the age of information, that we can get the word out if the right people show up without perhaps needing the kind of a crisis that we just went through. My fear is that if we don't find ways to break through the capacity for denial and for pretending that the way we've always done it will be fine going forward, no, you, you, you just stated the, the crisis that we, that we went through. Are you suggesting that it's, no, an, that, it's, it's a past no, tense? No, I'm not. That, absolutely not. Um, but the, we were right on the brink, as we all – well, as some of us understand, as, as the smarter people seem to understand, and, uh, we were on the brink. We pulled back a few <laughs> steps, but we haven't altered the direction. All we've done is pulled back a few steps. 
the fear is that this denial capacity, my fear, is that this capacity for denial will allow us to keep operating with business as usual, and we're going to find ourselves not just back at the brink, but off the edge. So no, I don't think I don't think that we are in any way, shape, or form out of the woods. Uh, so you're suggesting, in in socioeconomic terms, that we could be looking at spikes uh, the, the same as that you had in the the Great Depression. Certainly, yeah, only a lot worse. Only the outcome, given the gravity and the ex- and the the weight and depth of our economy today, absolutely a lot worse. And therefore, the seductiveness is that well, we're just going to go through a very slow recovery now. And, and that gives some of the power brokers that you're talking about, David, the opportunity to continue their denial and to continue the fact that they continue to believe that they, in fact, are not the ones to make the change. Somebody else will do it when they know in their heart of hearts a change must be made. And if you look at the, the, uh, the America of today, I don't think that there is the will uh, of people en masse to come together to change things. Um, I don't think that you've even got the power that you had in the demonstrations uh, in 67, 68. No, I agree. Um, but you may have a subtle uh, um, uh, minority in the middle classes that, that may just may just turn around one of these days very soon and say enough enough is enough yeah and and that's that's surely should be the biggest fear of industry leaders because it <laughs> it, it should we not really be uh, taking our focus off of uh, central government now now you know it's so partisan I, I, i'm not sure as good intentions as they they have and people do they are um, going around in circles to a certain extent. Mm. Um, it, it, is it not in your view? Would you agree that it's yeah. really down to the industry leaders to, to, to forge ahead? I mean, if you look at the 300 biggest industries in the world now, most of them have bigger GDPs than most countries that's in right. the world. That's right. So they, they yes, have I, huge power. I agree with you. I, that's, that's, that, that we're kind of coming back around to that again. It is, these are the power brokers. These are the people that decide. And you, you mentioned the charismatic leader types, the Gandhis, or on the other end of the spectrum, the Hitlers. Well, well, within the framework of the, the world of industry, a few very wise charismatic leaders who actually are awakened to the interconnectedness of this. And I don't mean in an airy-fairy way. I'm just talking sociologically here, the interconnectedness of everything. Um, these are the ones who actually could have a tremendous impact. But they're the ones that we have to turn to. Because they're the only ones who don't have the the frozen constituency that we have on constituency that we have on Capitol Hill. Let's, if we may, just go to the the sustainability issue. Okay, um, and not wishing to to divert too much, but. Let's look at a model here with Toyota. Toyota said, okay, well, uh, we have a sustainability issue. Um, We have to create a better product because I think it's it's considered um, important now that that it is the the product that we produce now, which which is paramount to everything moving forward. We have to have a product at a good price that the consumer is not manipulated by but can actually afford in a more frugal world. But can we just briefly look at the Toyota fiasco? I don't know what other word to use it. With a lot of cars being pulled pulled back uh, for for problems, uh, 
can I just, in your area, let's look at the CEO of Toyota. What has he gone through and what do you suspect that he's going through now and having to actually change in your mind the way that he moves forward with this company? Oh, man. Uh, you don't ask, ask the easy ones, do you? It, the problem with Toyota as a company that's demonstrated their commitment to sustainability, which could also be understood as a commitment to being a part a party to the larger world condition is that I don't think Toyota ever made that shift. I don't think that the CEO of Toyota or the corporate heads of Toyota, I don't think the, the brilliant automobile that Prius is reflects that. I think that reflects a very smart old world sensibility, old paradigm sensibility. Let's look like we're green. Let's look like we're concerned about the good, but let's use that to our advantage. It's one of the things you've heard Obama talk about. If we don't go – going green is practically a smart thing to do. Regardless of whether it's needed or not, it's a practically smart thing to do. So, uh, okay. So, so I don't think they've made the shift. And I think that what they're confronted with is that lack of really having made a shift to a more sustainable mindset, not a more sustainable product, but a more sustainable mindset, caught up with them in this whole thing with the sticking gas pedals. It revealed that they really weren't concerned about something larger than themselves. They weren't concerned about the greater good, which is where business has to go, period, end of conversation. Business has to go there for its own good. Forget about – let's talk about enlightened self-interest, not really enlightenment. They didn't go there. They went to – if this is a good way for us to continue to make sure the shareholders are happy. And that's the and so it caught up with them because if they had really shifted that, they would have dealt with this. It's a simple: the mats are sticking to the gas pedals. <laughs> so, so possibly it was good intentions, good ideas at the beginning. Uh, it was a good vision, um, but you know, isn't it possible that in the next, I would say little as three or four years, we are going to see a huge attrition of major industries and even larger industries um, disappear mm -hmm. because they cannot um, produce the product. They don't have the employees to do it. They don't have the investment for R&D. Um, is that possibly where Toyota's fitting in here, that, that, that this... Mm. This idea of trying to change a very profitable business model uh, in protecting their stakeholders has actually backfired and it could be one of the very reasons, and maybe it won't happen with Toyota, but one of the very reasons why companies try and, and do something that is touting the sustainability but actually fail from it. Yeah, and it, it's purely cosmetic. It's purely – and it, it, it's an unwillingness to consider that my and – and, and look – uh, th it's understandable. The the largest car company in the world, one of the most profitable car companies in the world, and and they're told that they've got to rethink their whole model. Uh, this is a hard one, and the answer is we'll pretend that we've rethought our model. We'll look like we have, but when it really comes to rethinking, especially in an Asian-based sensibility, which is far more hierarchical and far less. Uh, centered around the idea that the, the information can come from the bottom up as well. That adds to the difficulty. I'm not trying to make excuses for the leadership of Toyota, but I am saying it's understandable. But the fact of the matter is the shift that they pretended that they were making, I don't think, in fact, was really something that occurred. 
Does that answer your question? It does. Um, we've only got a short time left here uh, to to cover some issues. What about the the future here? Um, what about the real solutions to to all of these areas that that we we talk about? We've we've got industry that has to completely change its mindset. Um, we have people who are industry but are actually looking at the leaders for some answers. We have, in real terms, in this country, possibly um, seventeen percent unemployment. Uh, real with, unemployment, yeah. With in many areas, mm-hmm. in many no, no, uh, no, no. Uh, rural and industrial areas, right. absolutely no uh, opportunity to, to get jobs. Um, absolutely. What what is it going to take here? Is it going to take this mind shift in these leaders and something else to change this? Well, I, I don't. I don't think that we're. We're left to go to the either-or conversation. Is it industry or is it the legislative body of human situation and, and ignore politics altogether? I think, that it, I think that we do have to be willing to – as long as we can stay from what I call economic fundamentalism on the left or the right, meaning um, you know, th- these old views have to shift fundamentally. We have to play part of this. But I think it all comes back to a willingness – to fundamentally allow leaders to recognize the danger that we're in and as a result of that to be willing to consider that maybe, just maybe, how we've done it for the past 30 or 40 years is not the way we got to do it going forward. Really, seriously, there's got to be a wake-up call of some sort and I hope it's not a, 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 a deepening of the crisis we're in. Does it take somebody like Ron Paul to 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 change things, hmm. or, or again, are we looking at um, I, I th- old thinking again? I think that I think that when we're looking exclusively to the political domain, even somebody who's as difficult to pin down as a Ron Paul, I think that it does have to come from within the. I think it primarily has to come from within the business community, and it's got to be some pretty courageous thinkers who are willing to recognize that. There are new alternatives out there. There are different ways to think about business. And they're not in conflict with the greater good for the greatest amount of people. What is it that you would say to uh, all the kids coming out of uh, education now? I'd say don't get a degree in business. I'd say get a degree in the humanities or the sciences. Get a real degree. Pick up a few business classes, but get a real education. I have many colleagues who teach in the, in the business schools of America, and I, I respect their work. But we've got to produce not business technicians, but humanitarians who do business. That's one of our biggest challenges. Nearly 25% of entering freshmen this year in the United States will be entering as business majors. That frightens me. Because they're going to join the long ranks of students already coming out of universities now who have trained for jobs that possibly don't even exist anymore. Not only they train for jobs that don't exist, but they're not, we're not going to draw from business technological thinking the people who are going to lead us, because we don't lead businesses, we lead people. We don't lead processes and policies. We use policies and processes to lead the human beings. And when you have too much of an emphasis on the structures and policies and procedures of business, you detract from the humanity that is business. Business is humanity. And that's the problem that we have to come to grips with. In the, uh, the, the closing couple of minutes here, um 
what is it that you remember about your your childhood? What is it about those days <laughs> that you look back on with such fond memories that that you hope that children can still experience even in today's world? You know, I I recall when we moved back to California and there was a small a mom and pop. Uh, we didn't even call it, called it a candy store. It was a little grocery store that was even outside, just on the outside. Actually, it was in the city of Los Angeles. And my sister and I could still walk to that little grocery store. The idea of imagining that kind of a grocery store that's not that swept up into the, the universe of 7-Eleven is hard to imagine. But I just have the fondest memories of being able to feel like even in a city like L.A., there was a sense of community. I knew We knew the people who owned the grocery store. That's not an impossibility in a a uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A super organized system that says all the stores need to look alike. Maybe it's not a possibility, but I, I would hope that that some of the humanity that work you and I are talking about here could be something that actually within the framework of these larger conglomerates allow for that kind of warmth. Possibly it's looking at a more uh, uh, localized economy. Uh, possibly it's looking at community, communities or states actually being their, their own economies and within themselves and serving themselves. I think that that's something that needs to be taken very seriously, the whole idea of a localized economy, with, but not at the negation of the larger system that we can't get away from. Because I, th- I think it's foolishness to think we can get away from the larger overall economic system. But from within, there are other possibilities. And in a, a final statement of the day, um, <laughs> Uh, what is it uh, that you uh, principally uh, state to your leaders uh, when you're mentoring them? What is your, the, the greatest profound statement that you can give them to take away uh, for their future development? I'm not sure how profound it is, but, but what I know is when <clears throat> leaders get that the way they show up with their people actually not only affects the well-being of their people, but really does affect their bottom line, then there's the possibility, maybe not of enlightened, but but certainly of enlightened self-interest. Dr. Cleve Stevens, it's been a pleasure to share this program with you today, and I certainly hope that we'll be able to have many more programs together. I do too. Thank you very much, David. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.